0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Floating Anarchy. On squatters and unwaged workers' airwaves, end the rot. Why not squat the lot? I am Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. Hi, Andy. How are you? Oh, um, not too bad, Cam. Have you had a good month? Yeah, it's been all right. It's been okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, film festival was good. Yeah. Did you see anything relevant? Uh, yes, I saw a film called uh, Skin, mm-hmm, which we talked to. I talked to Daryl Lamont Jenkins a few months ago about.
2: Yes. um... That was interesting, and just by the by, we'll be we will be talking to uh, Robert Evans uh, a little later. But uh, one thing I did note from Skin was the gang that it, the narrative centred upon, the Vinlanders Social Club, uh, popped up again in Portland on the weekend. One of its members was one of the uh, key organisers. Um, yeah. everything old is new again. Yeah, and they they were not um, they were not very nice people. No. No. Also, uh,
1: we checked out Cold Case Hammerskjold uh, about uh, possible white supremacist cults or secret societies in South Africa. Yeah. So I would recommend people check out if they get a chance.
2: It is. They're, they're both great films. Um, and the, the uh, Cold Case one, um, uh, yeah, it's quite a trip. Well, how about we go to a song, Andy?
1: Okay. And then we'll come back and talk to the journalist Robert Evans.
2: Evans, uh, independent journalist, sometimes scribe for Bellingcat. And uh, welcome to The Sewer Show.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: So, Robert, I thought we'd get you on to talk about uh,
1: neo-fascism in Portland and elsewhere because you were at the rally in Portland this week, which has captured a lot of attention.
0: Yeah, I've been at the last couple of rallies. And uh, I I would say this most recent one was probably the most um, uh, positive I felt leaving one.
1: Why is that well because uh, for one thing it
0: was it was fairly peaceful um i don't know if that's the um the image of it that's pre- been presented there's certainly been some different um use of that put out by the right wing media but having been there it was largely peaceful um i very little uh to not- almost nothing in the way of violence aside from one or two small incidents um no serious injuries you know, uh, it was it, it was good in that regard, and also good in that um, you know a bunch of far right extremists, including some actual neo Nazis and Klansmen and stuff, showed up uh, in an armored bus and got chased out of town um, by a, a, a vastly larger showing of anti fascists. So I would say that, in as much as one of these rallies can have a positive uh, ending in an emotional tone, uh, this one had that. I, I saw some. Developments that I thought were positive, and the strategies used by these people to sort of non-violently resist as well. So, yeah, there was a lot I saw that I was good to see.
1: There were no concrete milkshakes this time.
0: Yeah, no milkshakes, which was nice. I, uh you know, I, I wound up in the line of fire of a lot of milkshakes at the milkshake rally. I probably got splashed by a dozen or more of them.
1: Oh no, friendly fire.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, like, what what, what I'll I'll say I appreciate is that they were vegan milkshakes, which means that there was no milk going rancid in the sun, and um, none of it really stained. Like, I got a lot of my clothes, that it all washed out. So if you're going to throw milkshakes on people, I'm glad that you're throwing milkshakes that uh, don't stain or uh, smell like rancid milk when they get hot.
1: Getting milkshaked by a vegan coconut milkshake could be part of a, any influencer's dream skincare regime. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's really, it was the dream of a lot of, and many of them got their wish, a lot of the far-right demonstrators to get milkshaked. Uh, I was uh, sort of standing around a small group of... um I think, I forget the exact name of the media outlet they claimed to represent, but it was InfoWars Affiliated, and a few of them were wearing InfoWars shirts, but it was a separate media outlet, and all these guys were, like, live streaming the whole time, and they were all putted out in full body armor. And when they got milkshakes, they were very happy. Um, (laughs) I think because they wanted the opportunity. Like, it gave them an excuse to claim persecution, and, you know, if if you paid attention to Alex Jones's, Coverage of that, he took the uh, the, he took the angle that Antifa was making uh, chemical weapons and deploying them against people. So that was like the furthest right uh, sort of uh, narrative that came up as a result of that day. But I think most coverage focused on what happened to Andy. No,
1: yeah, it's all well and good to be able to claim persecution, but uh, if you can turn it into a massive payday, yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: which which he very successfully did, which is why it was surprising that I didn't see him at all at the um at the rally this Saturday or last Saturday.
1: Well no, he was there in spirit well, though, been... live tweeting it even though he wasn't there.
0: Yeah, he was using a lot of other people's footage and editing a lot of other people's footage, uh very much inaccurately to make claims about things that were not happening. Um but, yeah, he was not there in person, which was interesting. We all kind of expected him to show up with bodyguards. Um, but, yeah, I didn't see him there at all.
1: Maybe No some other of,
0: journalist, I didn't saw him either.
1: Maybe some comical bandages around his noggin. Uh, that was something I wanted to ask you about. Do you, do you think that, uh, I don't know, it seemed like he was proliferating uh, fake news sort of on the fly, live as things happened and these narratives about hammers and things were popping up. Do you think that something's changed there where these these lies are, can spread a lot faster than they used to?
0: I mean, yeah, the internet, these lies can spread incredibly fast. And, uh, you know, I think what the... Um, if you remember the Covington showdown or whatever the, you want to call it from earlier this year, that was really clear. You know, obviously it started before that, but that was, I think, sort of like the clearest cultural moment where we got... Um, real confirmation that at least in the United States for everything that happens I'm guessing forever now going forward there will be two versions of reality there will be reality and then there will be the political reality um, from whatever side dissents from the actual reality of what happened and uh, that's why you've seen things like at the uh, the mo- at the March uh, on Saturday, uh, Andy you No know, tweeted about uh, a, an Antifa member on a scooter who hit a cyclist, and the cyclist had to be hospitalized. And the reality of the situation is that a person on a scooter hit a cyclist, and the Portland police, who would never give Antifa any credit they didn't have to, uh, stated multiple times this had nothing to do with the demonstration, just somebody on a scooter hitting a cyclist, which happens. Um, But Andy has continued to double and triple down on the fact that this was an Antifa member on the scooter who hit them, which, for one thing, like, I I don't even see how is relevant because it's clearly an accidental uh, crash either way. But, like, again, the police have repeatedly said it has nothing to do with the the march. But what has – like, this has become part of the the right-wing narrative of the march, which is that Antifa got violent and was responsible for injuring a bunch of people, just like there's claims that they – uh, brought concrete slabs and threw them um and you know the what actually happened is that there was this uh, a very distinct bus, an armored bus being driven by members of American Guard, which is a white supremacist organization that tied to several murders and mosque burnings, very dangerous people, not like. You know, with the Proud Boys or with Patriot Prayer, there's varying levels of, of uh, deniability. And, and in fact, I will state as someone who's talked to some of these people, many of them are not white nationalists, so to speak. They're just kind of caught up in this gang because it's it's like to fight or whatever. Um, American Guard is explicitly like they're Nazis. Yeah, they're Nazis. Um, and so American Guard shows up in a big black armored van. And after the rally's over, after the Proud Boys have retreated, they drive into the section of town, like, they essentially, like, cross the river because the police had tried to keep them on other sides of the river, um, the fascists and the anti-fascists. So these guys cross the river in their black bus, planning to do God knows what. We know that they've been tied to murders and assaults and burnings of mosques and like that. So they get spotted by anti-fascist spotters and confronted before they can get out of their bus. And there is video, uh, which is claimed to be the video of them breaking up and throwing concrete slabs. That does show them opening up a box, picking up a hard rock-like substance, breaking it on the ground, and tossing it at the bus. However, if you've been around concrete or know wh- how it functions, it was very clearly not concrete. It was not a hard stone. It was something more like um, sandstone or something, because as soon as it hit the ground, it crumbled into pieces and, in, like, dust and stuff. Um, and they were throwing it at the windows of the bus or at the bus itself. They didn't break windows with it. Um, you can see in the video, like only one of them even hits the bus. And most of what's being chucked at the bus are a handful of mostly empty plastic water bottles. Um, and the American Guard members responded by opening up the bus and swinging at people who were, again, kicking the side of a bus with a hammer, um, which, uh, you know, you can argue... Um, And I I think certainly from a legal standpoint, it's not uh, legal for the anti-fascist to be chucking rocks at the side of an armored bus. However, there was no risk of someone being harmed from that, because, again, it was an armored bus. Um, There is a risk of someone being harmed when you start swinging a hammer at the head of somebody who's kicking the side of your bus. Um, We would call that an escalation of the force continuum. Um, and and w- what happened is when this person starts swinging the hammer at people, the hammer gets pulled out of his hand and swung back at him, um, which, again, you can argue how justifiable it is or whatever. But the way Andy No uh, and others in the right wing media have like taken it is they just got footage of anti-fascists after they grabbed the hammer, swinging it back at him and said, look, Antifa brought a hammer and attacked these people. And the reality is, of course, no, they pulled a hammer out of the hands of a guy who was trying to beat them with it and then swung it back at him. Like, it, it's this it's this attempt to make it look not like you have several belligerents crashing into each other, but that Antifa is just attacking right-wing activists who are nonviolent and minding their own business. And the reality is that these guys rolled into the city armed with weapons, wanting to hurt people, uh, and they got into a fight, and they lost that fight. Uh, and again, you can... Say the anti fascists shouldn't have swung the hammer back, they shouldn't have thrown rocks, but like these people wanted a fight and they got one. Um, and it's it's not a case of uh, persecution. It's not a case of right wing activists just being attacked for being conservative. It's a case of Nazis rolling into a town with weapons, wanting to hurt people and getting some of what they tried to bring on to others.
1: I thought it was interesting just on the, the, what you're talking about with the divergent realities. Uh, Andy No obviously put out some like edited footage originally, and then I just saw earlier today he's put out some less edited video which does show you know the hammer originally on the bus. But he just says, Oh, the antifa have brought the hammer, and all of these replies from these MAGA chuds, uh, like thanks, Andy, <laughs> you've proven that you were right. It's like, hang on a second.
0: Yeah, it's, um, you know, and one of the problems that even when he admits to being wrong, there's another video he put up he's claiming was, like, there's a bunch. Like, the guy who actually started swinging the hammer, then after he started swinging the hammer, got beat up and was later pictured injured on the side of the road um, after that, I think mainly because he'd been maced, because they sprayed mace inside the bus to get them to go away. So he's pictured, like, and he's an older dude, and he's pictured looking, like, injured on the side of the road, and Andy captions it something like, a right-wing activist who was assaulted by Antifa. And, like, no, the reality of the situation is that uh, the guy was swinging a hammer and got, like, maced. Um, and, like, he, he, he wasn't attacked by Antifa just for being a conservative. He, he started hitting people with a hammer. And the same thing happened with um, a guy named Based Spartan is the nickname he gets because he wears this really outrageous Spartan getup, um, like Spartan warrior getup to protest. And uh, he and his daughter put themselves in the middle of a group of anti-fascists and John Toronto, who's the guy's real name, started swinging and hit a number of people uh, and got hit in return and eventually shoved out and was not seriously injured, was mostly just pushed out of the crowd by people because he was swinging at them like a madman. Um, However, Andy took just the latter chunk of that after he had initiated the attack and posted that video and claimed that it was a conservative activist and his young daughter and, uh, who were attacked. And like, for one thing, his daughter was 24 years old. She was not a kid. Um, and Andy's like, after this has gotten tens of thousands of views and retweets, he posts a clarification, I'm sorry, she was not a, a, a young girl, she was a young woman. And it's like, for one thing, that's not the primary thing that's wrong about your statement. For another, uh, you know, the, the disinformation already got out. Hundreds of thousands of people saw the original post where he's making it look like this is just a father and son, you know, hit by Antifa, um, and only a fraction of that saw him clarifying the reality of the situation. So it's it's very frustrating. He also doesn't provide any context. So if you go through the kind of social media posts that John Tarano was posting before the 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 rally it's a bunch of at one point he says i hope my daughter gets the shit beaten out of her like stuff like that where he's like hoping for a fight he's like i want a chance to hurt people i want a chance to fight people um like he 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 wrote all this stuff out and said it in videos and stuff like this guy's very clear when he goes to these events he wants to get in the middle of things he wants to provoke a fight and he wants uh to hit and to be hit that's like he he's uh I'll, I'll say an unbalanced fellow, but he's very clear about what he wants. So, again, to claim that's my issue with Andy, no. It would be one thing to report these guys went into Antifa looking for a fight, and they got a fight. And you can claim about, like, okay, who who started the use of force, who escalated, like, how how much of this was, like, justified or unjustified. That, that's journalism. That's fair. Stating that it happened is fair. Stating that just, like, trying to frame it as these people were just harmless activists wanting to uh, stand for free speech or whatever, and Antifa assaults them for no reason. Um, You know, his his goal is to provide justification for the president's desire to declare Antifa a domestic terrorist organization. Like, that's that's what's going on here, and it's very frustrating to see, especially since there are a lot of great journalists in the city, people like Jason Wilson and Katie Shepard and Shane Burley, who have put in a lot of work to try to present this whole conflict, which is very complicated and absolutely involves violence from a number of sides, um, and instead of doing any real reporting, he just uh, uh, is essentially trying to concoct a different version of reality so that people on the far right can have the boogeyman that they want to have.
2: I mean, one of the things that struck me looking at reportage by figures like, you know, is the ways in which they've been able to have those claims be picked up by more mainstream outlets like Fox and so on. Um, and it also was interesting, I think, that the the crowdfunding campaign uh, that was established in order to uh, compensate him for previous injury uh, was established by, I think, Michelle Malkin, who's also, as I understand it, has some association with Fox. I was wondering if you could comment on the ways in which Actors like Nyo, and, and there's a number of them, are able to produce materials which are then not only spread on the internet by social media, but are picked up by uh, mainstream media outlets. Yeah, you know, a lot of it
0: has to do with the inherent laziness um, bred in the people who call themselves journalists but who work in one chunk of the 24-hour news cycle or another. And Fox is a particularly bad player, but, but, but CNN and the others are, are all feed into this you have a lot of like people who have a lot of air time to fill because they have to put out stuff every day and they do not have time to actually understand what they're reporting about or to gain any kind of nuanced um uh, idea of what's happening every now and then they'll send out a reporter on the ground that will be able to do some good pieces but more often than not they're trawling twitter for videos and stuff that look compelling that they can put up in 30 seconds and You know, boil it down to a sentence and a half about whatever happened, and so, in an environment like that where there's no room for nuance, no room for detail, no no space to tell the story in its actual complexity, um, someone like Andy Noe who can edit down a 20 minute video to and cut out chunks of it. You know, there's other videos he's posted where he'll show like a right wing activist getting like pummeled in the face and cut out like what was happening 30 seconds before where that same guy was stomping on a dude's head and then like got knocked over. Um, like the, the his videos they're, they're kind of tailor made for this sort of situation because they, they cut out all the nuance, which um, you know, plays well, which is why, uh, you know, it's not just Fox that platformed. And I think the first mainstream voice, that like magnified the story of Andy's assault and like gave credibility to it without actually looking into the background and who he was and what he'd done was Jake Tapper. Um, and you know, to, um, for another example of that, I, one of the people that I know in Portland, she's a young activist. She's not a member of any Antifa group. She's like just an activist. She shows up and at a lot of protests and stuff and volunteers a lot of her time. And she was spotted at one of these rallies next to a couple of people in masks yelling. Um, and for the last three years, every time CNN's got a big story on, on Antifa, it's her picture they've used because she, it just was a good shot. Uh, even though she's not a member of that group, even though she's never um, like worn a mask and been in black block, she's standing next to a couple of guys who were at a huge protest and like that's the shot they pick. So it's, it's, you know, whenever you have a complicated story like what's been going on in Portland for the last three years, um, if you're a journalist in the thick of it trying to actually understand it and report on it with nuance, there's an extent to which you kind of accept that everyone else who covers it, every major organ who covers it is going to get it wrong, Um that said, I think Andy No represents sort of an escalation, or it's it, it, not that a weaponization of this effect, because he realizes how he has a very canny understanding of how the mainstream, um, particularly like 24-hour cable news works, and he's been very effectively able to play to that crowd, not just to make a lot of money, but to make an impact.
2: And one of the ostensible purposes of the rally that was organised by Patrick Prayer and Proud Boys was to uh, support calls for the criminalisation of anti-fascism in the United States. And I understand that after the event, one of the organisers said, well, when asked, was this a successful thing, said, yes, it was, because we got the president to tweet, you know, in support of our cause. What's your assessment of the situation, I guess, legally and politically with regards anti-fascist activism in the united states
0: there has been one attack that you might be able to credit to a a single anti-fascist a guy was not a member of any of the anti-fascist organizations antifa is not a group there are individual groups like rose city antifa william sprocken um, who lived in washington uh, had gone to some of these protests, was not a member of any specific organization, and attacked and attempted to burn several empty ice buses and was shot dead doing so. Um, that's the closest you get to an attack that was carried out by one of these people. There have been no murders. There have been no mass shootings. Um, you know, some people tried to tar the Dayton shooter as Antifa. There's zero evidence that he ever so much as showed up at a protest. Um, the, the most you've got is he retweeted a couple of things. Um, and of course, he didn't go after like a target that could be even vaguely defined as fascist. He shot up a random sports bar in Dayton. Um, so there, there's, there's no evidence. You know, I, I study terrorism for a living. I, I, I not just report on counterterrorism. I advise federal law enforcement on counterterrorism as part of my job. Um, you know, I've been shot at by ISIS in Mosul reporting on terrorism. Um, so the idea that antifa which is a, 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 I guess you could call a collection of tactics um or the idea that any individual anti-fascist organization could be considered a terrorist group is absurd and offensive to me which is not to say these the they don't do stupid or frustrating things or they haven't been individual members who have committed crimes that i think you know there should be there should be punishment for absolutely um But the idea that they're a terrorist group is is absurd on its face. And it it strikes me that attempts to do this are just attempts to criminalize left-wing activism. Um, And I I really do think that that's the goal here. Um, And it's interesting to me that although there have been multiple deaths tied to Proud Boys, there have been multiple uh, attacks and attempted terrorist attacks just in the last couple of weeks by people who attended the first Unite the Right rally. Um, James Reardon uh, was just like arrested for planning a massacre of, I think, Jewish people, Um, one of 27 arrests on almost all far right mass shooting threats that have happened in the weeks since the Dayton shooting or not the Dayton shooting, the El Paso shooting. Um, And there's no calls, really, not not by the president, not by the Republican Party um to to do anything about that to treat say the proud boys or you know groups like American Guard as domestic terrorists. you know in in terms of like all of the different right wing terrorist attacks, which have killed well over a hundred people in the last year, um, if you look at all the right wing terrorist attacks that have happened um, since this all started cooking off, um, the only one that's being investigated as a domestic terrorist attack is the El Paso shooting. Uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue shooting, um, which fits every definition of a terrorist attack I am aware of as the one who gets paid to study this stuff. Uh, not a domestic terrorism investigation, because um, it's, it's hard to do that. And because funding has been pulled from domestic terror fighting and like it's very frustrating that that Antifa, who, again, the worst thing I've ever seen a member of Antifa do, and it was not okay, was throw a glass bottle in the direction of somebody they considered a fascist. Um, didn't hit them, thankfully. That was bad. Definitely a crime. Not an act of terrorism. More of a guy throwing a bottle. And, um, you know, for the record, other things were being thrown back. It was a street fight. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's infuriating. Um that, that it's even being treated this way. And what strikes me as closer to an act of terrorism is what happened on May Day in the city of Portland, uh, which Andy No was involved in, a group of members of Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys showed up at a bar called Cider Riot, which is kind of a, a bar frequented by anti-fascists and often, uh those folks often head back to after rallies to sort of chill out and have a couple of drinks. So they showed up at Cider Riot after a bunch of protests where they'd been pulling masks off of people on May Day, Andy Ngo was in tow. Um, some people who were there allege that he was partly responsible for convincing people to come outside uh, on the sort of idea that they would be like interviewed or whatever. And then they were confronted by members of Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys, uh, and fighting ensued. And when I say fighting ensued, I mean one member of Patriot Prayer pulled out a telescoping and baton and broke a woman's spine. There's video of it. It was not a fight. It was a woman standing there talking to him, and he hit her in the neck and knocked her out instantly, broke her vertebrae. Um, and as there's been six arrests so far as a result of this attack. Now, I think it would probably be a stretch to call that terrorism either, but it is closer to the definition of terrorism, to my eyes, um, than some kids in masks throwing, uh, uh, you know, some form of crumbly stone at an armoured bus full of Nazis. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's my opinion on the matter. Um,
1: yeah. Uh, Robert, you mentioned the the rush of arrests that we've had in the last few weeks. It seems like in the last week there have been a, a larger yeah. than normal number of people being arrested for planning or for talking about committing mass shootings. Do you think has... What, what do you think is behind that? Is there, that there is some sort of coordinated uh, effort being planned that has been uh, infiltrated and stopped? Or do you think that perhaps this intelligence is always there and uh, it's just being acted upon at this time?
0: Oh, my. Now, you've asked... Um, the long answer to that question is a free audiobook that I've put out. If you go to waroneveryone.com you can listen to it. It's about four hours. The short answer is that starting in the 1980s, a guy named Louis Beam, who was a, a, a grand dragon of the KKK, um, wrote a series of articles about what he called leaderless resistance, which was this idea that because white supremacist insurgent groups and terror cells, which you know had existed and been very active in the 70s and early 80s, um, they had a nasty habit of being infiltrated by federal law enforcement. So he came to this idea that instead of – having groups with strong hierarchies, what you should seek to do is inspire um, individuals to go out and carry out attacks to destabilize society and ideally exacerbate racial tensions and divide, exacerbate the divide between the right and the left. Um, And that evolved into eventually attempting to sort of um, carry out attacks like this in order to provoke more gun control, in order to provoke uh, an uprising on the right wing uh, against the government, um, which is, of course, if you read the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto, the Poway Shooters Manifesto, those of those guys specifically talked about wanting to uh, inspire more gun control in the United States to spark a civil war. So this plan goes back into the 1980s. And it's it, it like with any terror organization. Um, it was more than just a guy writing about it. There were serious acts taken to try to make this happen. Um, there was a terrorist group called the Order, and I think 1983-84 is when they were most active. They robbed banks and armored cars. They also killed a couple of people. They robbed banks and armored cars and made off about $4 million. Some of it was spent buying things like rocket launchers and machine guns, which were given to different, and money was given to different neo-Nazi and KKK groups around the country. But a chunk of it was spent by Lewis Beam, this guy I was telling you about who came up with the idea of leadersless resistance, buying Apple II computers and networking them together and creating what he called LibertyNet, which was essentially an all-fascist internet made in 1984, um, connecting all these different groups around the United States and eventually Canada and into Germany, which also allowed them to spread illegal propaganda into Canada and into Germany. And over the late 1980s into the 1990s, uh, they developed tactics for recruiting and red pilling, which is their, the current term they use for it. They didn't call it that back then, but they do now. Converting new people to their ideas um, by infiltrating communities of gamers, by infiltrating communities of people who are talking about like pop culture or people who are people who they considered to be vulnerable. And they had all these different tactics. One of which is obviously deny ever being a Nazi if people call you as you're trying to propagandize to them, claim it's a joke and that like anything you were saying about the Jews or about non-white people was just crude humor in order to kind of deflect it. Um, so they built all of these strategies up and we're very active attempting to spread their ideology in this way. And, you know, essentially find people in these kind of apolitical spaces and pull them into more political spaces, spaces where they could be further converted. Um and this sort of culminated in 2013-14 um, in a, a, you know, the, the, the social mo- movement known as Gamergate, which was a, 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 essentially a reaction. It started out as kind of a reaction of uh, kind of misogynist video gamers on the Internet to women who were pointing out misogyny in video games. Um, and, you know, there was nothing Nazi or, or white supremacist about that, but it was a reactionary movement and the Nazis and the white supremacists found them and started infiltrating these communities, particularly a place called Achan, um, which is of course where three of the, this year's, you know, most recent terrorist attacks originated from Achan, chan and before actually you count the mosque shooting in Norway. Um, so Achan's chans where the Poway shooter, where the Christchurch shooter, where the El Paso shooter announced the start of their attacks and the Norway shooter announced the Christchurch shooter's manifesto was the thing that convinced him to carry out an attack. So, you know, 8chan in the time from 2013 14 on these kind of bad actors within the site, um, push it from being these guys who don't like women and are, are kind of more reactionary and like racist jokes, like jokes about the Holocaust. It's, it's actual hardcore Nazi propaganda starts being pushed to the point that, in 2019, these guys are not just talk joking about the Holocaust. They're having nuanced discussions about like which translation of Mein Kampf is best, and like talking with each other about how to best spark a race war. Um, and yeah, so it, it, that's that's my short-ish explanation for how we've got where we are. Um, it's it's which is why whenever I lecture law enforcement, when I talk to reporters, I try to. Um, impress upon everybody that what we're seeing and what we see in eruptions like what happened in Portland, or has been happening in Portland for the last three years, It happened in Charlottesville in 2017, Um, these are not isolated events. These are products of a very long-reaching strategy to provoke unrest and dissent and eventually to cause mass internecine violence um, with the goal of, of you know, creating, uh, the opportunity for a white ethno state to arise. Like that's, that's the end goal. These guys started cooking up in the 1980s. And a lot of them have been working in a decentralized pla- uh, method of towards making it happen. And, you know, the, the people who died in El Paso are just more casualties in that fight.
2: Uh, Robert, the cross killer was, uh, Australian. It was, um, took place in another country. We have an international exchange of ideas and proposals through sites like 8chan. What do you understand to be the nature of those international linkages and how close would, say, someone like Tarrant living in Australia or Aotearoa New Zealand, how close would their association be with a group of Nazis in Portland or in, uh, you know, Uh, leeds or london or somewhere else what what can you tell us about that international dimension
0: well you know that's that's part of what the internet has allowed and i've you know i I found messages on like um uh usenet groups in the early 90s where neo-nazis are talking about how the internet the thing that ever happened to fascism because it has allowed these guys who might be the only person in their town who really hold these beliefs to communicate with a network of other people and radicalize these other people. And, you know, in the past, somebody like Terrence, the Christchurch shooter, who for whatever reason was disaffected and angry and, you know, had a bunch of racial biases or whatever, he might've either just kind of kept quiet about it, um, or he might've eventually like through just exposure to everybody else, gotten over some of this and grown as a person. Instead, they find this community uh, of of like-minded believers who don't just say, um, oh, it, you're fine the way you are, but say, actually, things are even more, you know, extreme than you know, and, like, you should read this, and you should read this, and you should read this. And they, they radicalize each other, um, which is something, there's a scholar of extremism, Scott Atron, who studies how and why people join terrorist groups and has, has done a huge amount of ethnographic, ethnographic research, has probably talked to more extremists, um, extremist fighters than anyone alive, and one of the things he's found is that people don't radicalize on their own very often. They radicalize in groups, um, which is why I push against calling these folks lone wolves. You know, Tarrant may have acted as a single individual, but he did not see it that way, which is obvious if you read his, his manifesto. He saw himself as a member of a, a, not just a movement, but almost a military unit taking part in a war. Um, and you know, his, his comrades on A chain before it was shut down, um, you know, regu- they referred to him as Saint Tarrant. They passed around pictures of him, they shared his manifesto. Um, they, they, they thought it was very important to keep his name alive and to celebrate his accomplishments, which I think is one of the things that's very different from this new generation of mass shooters to the old ones. Um, these people aren't suicidal. Tarrant explicitly hoped he would survive his rampage, so did the Poway shooters, so did the El Paso shooter, and they all, in fact, survived for their rampage. These people are not looking to commit suicide by cop. They're not people who want to die and take everyone with them. They are people trying to carry out military attacks in order to uh, essentially achieve a set strategic goal. That's, that's what's going on here. Um, And, you know, you do have suicidal – the Dayton shooter is an example of kind of that old style of mass shooter. This is a guy who murdered his uh, brother for being trans and then realized his life was over and decided to kill a bunch of innocent people at the same time. That's a different problem than terrorists trying to carry out a terror campaign as part of a war. And what you're seeing with these far-right terrorists um, is a a situation more equivalent – to what we've seen with ISIS. Um, and you know, Tarrant had international connections. He had, not only did he chat online with fascists from all around the world, but he traveled around Europe. He met with Austrian fascist groups, which you saying he met essentially with, with the Austrian equivalent of, of people in groups like American Guard. Um, and he would have read a lot of posts from people in the Pacific Northwest because the Pacific Northwest is one of America's hotbeds of neo-Nazism and fascism. They have this idea of the Northwest imperative that because the Northwest is the whitest part of the United States, if they could give a bunch of other Nazis to move here, they could take over the region and have a white ethnostate. So there's tons. The base just cropped up, which is a group of people holding neo-Nazi weapons training camps and combat training camps, and they're located in Washington and Oregon, primarily. Um, so he would have read a bunch of posts from those people. He would have communicated with them constantly on 8chan because there's a ton of them. Um, so, you know, th- th- that's, that's what's going on here. Even though there's not the, – the fact that there's not a high command saying like, okay, you, Brendan, you're going to shoot up this mosque on this date. Um, That doesn't mean this isn't a terrorist organization. And in fact, the the fact that they are so decentralized is one of the things that makes them much harder to fight than ISIS. There's a reason there have been relatively few ISIS attacks in the United States, particularly compared to far-right terrorist attacks. It's a lot harder to organize something like that. It's a lot harder to coordinate something like that without being caught. But if your goal is just to radicalize people and get them to believe that they're part of this fight and eventually convince them that the only logical step next in their evolution is to carry out a violent attack, um, well, how do you, you you can't stop people from doing that legally? Um, you know, and, the, and one of the terms you'll hear use is stochastic terror, which is randomly generated terror throughout the internet. And essentially the idea is that you convince people to believe things that the only logical response that they really believe what you're saying is to go murder a bunch of people. Um, and that's not illegal. Um, you know, I have uh, one of the guys who was part of a, a major force behind the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Christopher Cantwell. The um, Crying Nazi is his nickname because he got some legal trouble and he was videotaped crying. Um, Cantwell, uh, he has a, a podcast regularly and he you know he's very angry at some local charlottesville activists including a friend of mine molly conjure because molly is very active anti-fascist and he doesn't tell listeners go kill molly but he'll have like he had a call with a a clearly mentally unstable young man who's asking him how to get a girlfriend and cantwell repeatedly told him go to charlottesville Find Molly Conjure. Here's her Twitter account. Here's what she looks like. She's going to say she doesn't want to have sex with you, but she really, really does. So just go find her and have sex with her. Um, I play that audio clip when I lecture counterterrorism students and, and members of federal law enforcement, usually younger ones who want advice on fighting this thing. And I ask them, what can you do about that? And there's nothing they can do about that because it's not illegal to say those things. He's not saying rape her. He's not saying kill her. He's saying, clearly unstable man, go find this person, and they'll want to have sex with you. There's, there's nothing illegal about that, just like there's nothing illegal about saying the Jews are bringing over migrants as an attempt to wipe out white people. And the unstated thing is that, so now you need to go shoot up a synagogue in order to fight that. Um, but you know, if you were to say you have to shoot up a synagogue, that would be illegal. But saying everything up to that point, totally fine. And that's that's the fight that we're in right
2: now. And so the, the students in your classroom and, and authorities and the law doesn't provide moments to intervene in, on this occasion. Um, but, you know, are there ways in which members of the general public or, you know, citizens in the United States or Australia or elsewhere can uh, come to grips with this phenomenon? And do you think there's ways in which it, it can be tackled, uh, outside of that framework? Like, w- what should people, if they should do anything apart from pay attention, what do you think people should uh, do to try and, I guess, um, uh, mitigate the harms of this this ideology and these movements?
0: Well, you know, one thing you can do is look into and um, perhaps get involved with anti-fascist work in your community. And I'm not talking about putting on a black mask and marching and blocking the street, protesting. Most of what these people do is stuff like go through all the footage from different, you know, from like Charlottesville of these Nazis marching and match up faces to names in order to say, uh, hey, if you live in this town, we just found out that this guy who lives near you is a member of a neo-Nazi group. And here he is on video beating up a black guy with a stick. Maybe be concerned. Maybe maybe you should be worried. You know, one of the things people asked me when I was doing my media appearances after Christchurch is how could we have spotted this guy ahead of time? And, well, if there had been you know, a more active anti-fascist scene in New Zealand uh, or in Australia who had noted what this guy was saying on social media, you know, he posted pictures of his guns with all of those crazy you know, words and references to other white nationalist attacks on them days before he carried out his rampage. Um, it's possible that if people had been paying more attention, he might have been caught. Um, It's possible he wouldn't have been. But I think the fact that 27 of these people have been arrested in the last week and change, two weeks since El Paso, is proof that more can be done than was being done at that point. Um, And you'll find in a lot of these cases, you know, there's evidence that when um, those probably rampaged through New York City, assaulting people. Uh, the authorities were able to arrest a number of them because of the information gathered by anti-fascist activists online who had just been matching faces to names and figuring out who these people were. I do think that's a factor in it. You know, the El Paso shooter, his mom reported him to the police a week or two before the shooting, saying she was concerned about her son, his level of emotional maturity, the fact that he bought an AK-47. You know, if there had been – if when the police looked into that, number one, if they looked into it more because I don't think they ever did anything with that. They just told her there's nothing illegal with having this gun. But if there had been – if somebody had found some of the places this guy was posting, some of the things he was saying online, and then when the police looked into it, they would said, oh, this guy just bought an AK-47, and he's posting about race wars and stuff online. Maybe we need to take a deeper look at this kid and see if something bad is about to happen. Um You know it's it's paying attention to this it's not treating them like they're just individual nuts and you can't do anything to stop them there's a radicalization process there's a recruitment process and a lot of these people talk about what they're planning before their attacks which is again why there's been so many arrests so i think you know obviously law enforcement can and there's evidence that they are now doing a better job of looking for these people but I think we all need to be looking for these people. We all need to be paying attention and not just brush it off when somebody starts talking about, you know, claiming that the Holocaust was fake or that Jewish people are responsible for, you know, pushing a white genocide. Maybe be concerned when people start talking about that stuff and look into things a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I don't know what else is going to stop this, but vigilance um you know and i think at the end of the day when you're talking about the problem of fascism um fighting it you know there's things law enforcement can do there's things the government can do but at the end of the day it's a bottom-up fight in order to beat it it, it has to be you know that that effort has to start from within the community otherwise these people will find spaces to exist and to um to to, to spread and this is not nothing i'm saying by the way is controversial Counterterrorism theory when we talk about ISIS. It's just we don't usually think about white nationalist terrorists in the same way, and we need to start doing that.
1: Well, Robert, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, would you like to plug any and all of your things that you want to plug?
0: You know, I, I, the only thing I really want to plug is go to com. It's a free audio book. There's no ads. It explains at least the American view of, like, how um, this current movement and all of this current insurgency, because I think what we're seeing right now in the United States, and it, to a lesser extent internationally, is a, a white nationalist insurgency. And so it, it explains how that happened and, you know, w- where that all came from. So um, check that out. Again, it's free, uh, thewaroneveryone.com.
1: Well, if, if you unplug plug it, I'll also throw in that you have a very good
2: podcast called Behind the Bastards. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: I do. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Robert. Don't let the bastards get you down.
0: There ain't no country
1: big enough For my love For my love It's free as the wind Ain't no country big enough All right, you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. We just heard from Robert Evans before on Twitter, at IWriteOK, okay, just the letters O and K. He's a modest fellow. Uh, and that is all we've got time for, Andy. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. So the Mafalda program is up next. We'll catch you around. See you later.
0: Stand like a champion Live like a warrior